Hello, I'm Matt Pryor of the Get Up Kids, and this is Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets. Here we're going to tell the oral history of the label by the artists, fans, and insiders. Vagrant has had a lasting impact on the world of music, and this is the story as told by the people who lived it. We will speak to the people who are in bands from the label's formative days, like Dashboard Confessional, Face to Face, Saves the Day, Alkaline Trio, Hot Rod Circuit, and Hey Mercedes, and my band too as well as the people behind the beloved rock records they've put out, like Rocket from the Crypt, The Hold Steady, The Anniversary, Kofax, and Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. We will also get into the heavier side of Vagrant when we talk to Senses Fail, Thrice, From Autumn to Ashes, The Bled, Monine, Balancing Composure, and many more. We talk to the fans of the bands, some of whom went on to be pretty influential in their own fields. This includes Manchester Orchestra's Andy Hull, Say Anything's Max Bemis, Kevin Devine, and Celebrity Chef's Graham Elliott and Danny Bowen. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's talk about how this started. Vagrant Records was founded in 1995 by Rich Egan and John Cohen in Los Angeles, California. In addition to the groups we listed above, it helped build the careers of other notable acts like School of Seven Bells, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, The Eels, Blitz and Trapper, The Lemonheads, and Protest the Hero. The label was also instrumental in helping to start the careers for megastars of today like The 1975 and Bad Sons. Many people may say there was a vagrant sound, but you would have to exclude a lot of other bands Vagrant worked with to get to that conclusion. As years went on, the label proved themselves not to be just a traditional punk rock label in sound, but instead one that had the attitude of punk and made their own rules and did the best with what they had at the time. As you'll hear in this episode, this wasn't your conventional record label. But if you had heard of Vagrant in the mid-90s, you may have thought it wasn't started by them. Here's a conversation I had with Blink-182's Mark Hoppus. I always thought of Vagrant Records in the beginning as uh, Trevor from Face to Face's label. Like that he owned it. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought too. <laughs> Why, is that not correct? No, <laughs> he didn't it's own it. It's not correct. Uh-uh. You disabuse me of this now, 20 years, 25 years into this shit? I never, I never claimed that. I never, Don't blame me. No, I'm just saying, like, you, like, you're the one that tells me the truth after all this time? It's, I think it's a common misconception for, for people of well, our generation. Well, in the, I'd be, just because uh, Face to Face was on Vagrant? They weren't even on Vagrant. They were on... Jesus. Like, Vagrant put out, like, their live record and their vinyl. Right. And they were, okay. man- they were managed by Rich. Right. Rich is the one who owned Vagrant Records. Trevor never owned I it. understand. Okay, got it. My mistake. Mark and I weren't the only ones who had this wrong. Here's Newfound Glory's Chad Gilbert. So I remember, you know, being a fan of Face to Face and being like, oh, this is their, you know, before I knew who, who Rich Egan was, I was like, oh, this is like Face to Face's punk rock label. This is cool. To understand the label, you have to know how the story started and what was happening behind the scenes. This is Rich Egan talking about how the label started. So you, you're a manager professionally, band manager. Were you already in that business when you decided to start a label? And why did you decide to start a, a record, like a, a punk rock record label? Oh, no, no. I was not in the management. I wasn't in, I was in the college student business okay. when I started it. Um, I mean, uh, okay. In fairness, actually, I quote unquote managed the, a couple of crappy punk rock, punk rock bands that broke up five minutes after we started doing shows. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I started Vagrant, um, my senior year of college, um, just because, you know, I mean, that's what you did. If you couldn't play an instrument or, you know, you either were, you went on the road and like sold merch and lugged equipment, or you let bands crash on your floor and you put on VFW all shows. And, you know, if you had a few extra bucks, you put out a seven inch. That was exactly what my life was. And I was totally more than happy to be waiting tables and having my apartment listed in uh, book your own fucking life. Was it really? Oh, it was. I, yeah. My, my wife, at the, my wife at the time was none too pleased 
about the fact that she'd come home and there'd be like literally crust punk rockers lying on the floor everywhere. Oh my God, that's amazing. She was like, and that she was like, because we we started dating or we yeah we we started dating after I had already started doing that and but and then she moved in with me. And she's like, oh, this has to end. You're not putting me in next year's kitchen. This is not gonna fly. So I yeah they stopped sleeping on the floor a few years into it. But um but yeah you know I would uh we'd put on shows and um we would do that and then i i just scrapped together what i could waiting tables and and then um i was doing it in my apartment and then cohen um john had like john was working in the mailroom somewhere and uh he would he would come over and hang out in my apartment during the day and i was kind of giving him a punk rock uh tutorial and telling him about this label and selling him on the dream and he was just like you know john's like okay it sounds like we could get rich from that i think <laughs> although we couldn't you know we didn't have any bands we didn't have a business plan we didn't have any money but uh i thought john was hilarious and so for that he was able to get half the label and um so then we we put out West by North South and uh, we sold out of that immediately. We took out a couple ads, one in Flipside and one in Maximum Rock and Roll. Like you do. Like you do. And that's that was the advertising budget. I remember it was 60 bucks for a half page in Maximum and 40 page or 40 bucks for a um, quarter page in Flipside was all I could afford. So that was my $100 budget. And we took pre-orders and we sold out of the thing. And, you know, in classic Egan business acumen, they cost me about nine bucks to put together and I charged 10 bucks for them. And I didn't include, I didn't include postage paid. So, you know, we lost our ass. And, uh, well, at the time, was, if you, if you had charged more than 10 bucks for anything, there would have been riots in the streets. Like, oh, for sure. It wasn't so much the list price. It was how much I paid to get it made Yeah, because well. I needed each one to have its own cover. I needed to make, especially make a box set that would fit five, seven inches because usually you use a, uh, like a, 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 one of those eight millimeter, um, film canister but boxes can hold three, seven inches. So I had to actually have custom made five, seven inches. And so it just cost a fortune. It was just ridiculous. So we put that out and then, um, it sold out immediately and it was insane. I was like, Whoa. Cause I go, it was such a stoke, like to go to my PO box every morning and it would just be stuffed with envelopes with 10 bucks in it. And so we sold out of that and then we were getting requests to put on CD and I was like, I'm not ever putting things on CD. And, uh, <laughs> And so I was like, nah, you know, yeah, a little too purist for my own good. Well, long story short, we eventually put it on CD and I think we sold 5,000 of those, which was just like, holy shit. And then, um, then what really kind of got us going to the point where we were like, okay, this actually might be something that we could at least, you know, one of us could get paid to do because I was waiting tables and, and, and John was also waiting tables. So maybe we could switch off getting paid, but I was man. Oh, this is, this was kind of the key thing was that at that time, um, I got engaged and, uh, I needed to get a real job. I couldn't wait tables and, you know, be putting on hall shows. So, uh, I applied at a management company and for to this day, I don't know why they hired me, but they, uh, I got a job at a management company and they was, they, they had like James Taylor and Dwight Yoakam and Hart and Faith Hill, like these big, huge acts that I didn't know who they were, but they wanted, they had signed Pond, just band on sub pop. And they needed somebody who knew that world to do their day-to-day management. So they hired me. And, uh, so I was doing Vagrant, you know, I was stuffing envelopes at night and I was working at this real job during the day. And that's how I signed face to face because they came up for management there and we signed them. And, and so I was doing Pond and face to face. And then I worked there for two and a half years. And then Vagrant, in the meantime, because face to face, we were able to put together before your punk. So we had, you know, Blink-182 and all those bands on it. 
and face to face. And then that sold 75,000 copies, which was just insane. Yeah, it was just insane. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to leave. I'm going to quit this management company and uh, go work with John. And, you know, we had a one room office. And so I did. And I took face to face and pond with me to manage. And then that's how the whole thing started. Then it was before your punk. And then, then, oh, be, because I managed face face, they let us put out their live record. A&M for some reason said, yeah, you can put out a live record on an indie. And we sold a hundred thousand of those. That's how we had the money to, you know, be a company and then sign you guys. So Brilliant. that's kind of how it went. Yeah. It was, it was through the kindness of artists and strangers and friends that the whole thing even got off the ground. You know, it's kind of interesting. And I, I kind of assumed you were going to have this type of answer about the very, very beginning. Cause it's not, it's not really like a compelling thing when you explain it to people, but you just kind of go, I, that's just what we do. You know yeah. what I mean? Why'd you start this thing? It's like, I, I don't know. Like, well, well, why we'll wouldn't do. we? Yeah. Why wouldn't we start this thing? You know, that's cause what, what do you mean? Why, why, what's why? <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Totally. <laughs> Who else was going to do it? You know, like, I didn't give this any thought. We just did it. <laughs> totally. And by the way, still kind of going with that same, yes. <laughs> that same mindset. It's just, you just roll with your instinct. But yeah, back then, especially, you don't have anything to lose. So, and why the hell not? It costs 600 bucks to put out a seven inch and they can sell it at shows, you know? Yeah. And it was, uh, it was just what you did. I, I guess kids, the equivalent now would be, you know, they don't need record labels. They put it up on, on the streaming services and it just goes, you know? This is Trevor Keith of Face to Face talking about why he put faith in Rich Egan, which ended up helping the label grow. We got some advice from some other people in bands that were like, yo, dude, your manager probably shouldn't be out on the road with you. You might want to reconsider your whole manager thing. And um, so we parted ways with him and then we started looking for managers and, and Big Choice had come out and we were starting to get a little bit of attention. So it was a little bit easier for us to take those meetings because, you know, only a couple of years prior no one had any interest in talking with our band. But now we had a release on Fat. We were, you know, had a new record and uh, we were touring and all that good stuff. We shopped around in the L.A. music scene a little bit and uh, met. I think we met with like three or four different management companies. And, you know, they all scared us a little bit because it all seemed way too official. And these were older people that, you know, at least seem to have power. And we were just nervous about getting gobbled up, um, except for at one company. And the one company called Borman Moyer, there was a person who was our age also at the meeting and uh, looked like a skater dude, you know, like some kind of skate rat. And that was Rich Egan. I remember him wearing his Ben Davis hat and a hoodie, you know. And um, so that stood out for us. And, and once we had had our kind of obligatory conversation with the manager, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes with my fingers. Then Rich came over and said, Hey, I just want you guys to know I am a big fan of your, of your stuff. I know the band, I know punk rock. And if you guys came over here, I would actually be your point guy. So you wouldn't have to feel so alienated by these like music business types. And, um, and that went a long way for us. So we decided to go with Borman Moyer mainly because Rich was there. You know, we got along really great with Rich and and it was a good experience with the manager. And then Rich made the decision at some point once he had picked up a couple of other clients to go off on his own and we went with him. As far as I know, I think it was only us and a band called Pond that went with Rich. 
So really from that point on, it was a lot about managing the band and him trying to clean up messes and further <laughs> our career and, and help us, you know, make decisions going forward and with the landscape that we had, we had created. Um, but we were obviously in record deals. And so even though Rich, you know, was starting Vagrant and aspiring to get that off the ground, he, we were, we didn't have like open access to just go make records. And then, um, the idea came about from Rich that we should do a live album. And that live album was the first full length vagrant release to my knowledge was face to face live. West by North South was a box set of five split seven inches featuring face to face and J church among others. The funny thing about the West by North South box set, the um, the way Vagrant started, only thing the thing that was going to be our debut release was a split uh, between Jawbreak and Rock from the Crypt, and they both said yes, but then they both flaked. And in the meantime, while they said yes, I was I was like, well, shit, I could make this into a box set. And all I did was take the bands that those bands hung out with and toured with. So that's how J Church ended up on it. And uh, you know, like the Mises were friends with and Fluff with Rocket. And so I just like I'll surround it with their friends' bands, and they'll be stoked to be on. And then those two flaked, and I ended up with West Bend or South. But twenty five years, some twenty five years along the lines, I ended up working with both Rocket and Jawbreaker. But Vagrant was only going to be a one release label, and it was going to be that split that never happened. That's funny. Weird how shit plays out. Vagrant put out a lot of compilation CDs, which were a big deal in this era. Here's Say Anything's Max Bemis on that. Around the time that I was like getting into punk music, it was all about like comps, as I imagine for you. It was partially too, but because I was on the West Coast, it was like Epitaph, Fat Wreck, Chords, and then Vagrant comps and like Hopeless Records comps. So like those would be the ones that I would buy. I would like literally, you know, I'd come to like Tower Records or whatever it was at like the Beverly Center or something and just peruse punk records. And literally like it was almost like at the beginning, it was almost just by like album art or like hearing from, a you know, just knowing that this band was on the label or that. So I think I probably liked, I know they did, you know, the, the Before You Were Punk. And then I think they did some other comps too, like, uh, Another year on the streets, but it was like pre pre you guys. Another year on the streets, where it was like hippos, MXPX would be on it, or like blank. It's also how Chef Danny Bowen of Mission Chinese and Mind of a Chef came to find the label. Yeah, man, I can honestly tell you the time and place. Hit I me. remember I was like working at the mall. Um, I worked. <laughs> I was like sixteen, maybe younger. I was around that age though. I worked at this optometrist office, um, and I thought that I wanted to be an eye doctor. And I was in Hot Topic on my lunch on my my break, and. I'd like, you know, done my round of the mall. And I was in Hot Topic and I was like, I was checking out and um, I don't remember what exactly I was buying, but I remember like the, another year on the street, like Sampler was there or something like that. And I was like, oh, I think it was like free or something. They were like giving them out or something like that. So I got it. I may have come with a purchase of over X amount of dollars, but I got it. And like, I had just like growing up, my parents were really strict about the kind of music I listened to. So I was only allowed to listen to like Christian music. Like, but then Vagrant, like this Sampler was kind of like, I would buy and records kind of secretly. And if my mom or dad found, my mom found them or my, actually my friend Tim's mom was like super Christian. She would like break our CDs. So it's kind of like this like naughty thing that we do. We would shop at Hot Topic and like have different clothes we'd wear when we left home or we would wear it at church. <laughs> With a vagrant, another year on the streets, those samplers, I remember getting that. Even though the label didn't have a lot of releases out, they were making a stir in the underground. What were the other releases? Boxer. 
Oh, right. Face to Face Live and Before You Were Punk. Before You Were Punk was a compilation of punk bands covering 80s new wave songs. And a few seven inches. We had a J Church seven inch and uh, we had a box set of seven inches out with Face to Face and Down by Law and J yeah, Church. I had the, uh, I didn't have the whole box set of that. I just had the face to face one. Right. <laughs> yeah, the prime of it. Kevin Kusatsu was an unsung hero of the label. It's even hard to articulate just how important he was at the time. I don't know. They did like, I, it was just CDs, right? There was like a bunch of seven inches, a few compilations. And I think when I got there, they were marketing sort of a face-to-face live album and a compilation. And I think they had had a good run with a comp called Before You Were Punk, which was 80s new wave, pop punk covers of 80s new wave, if I remember correctly. So that's how they got their legs with the label. And so when I came in, they were sort of, you know, you were still doing things with like one sheets and fax machines and calling stores, getting them to PO stuff and like getting them to order it from your, this distributor or this distributor or whatever. Um, so when I walked in, he was, I like kind of checked out his record collection, like asked him a bunch of questions. He seemed cool. I liked face to face, you know, he managed other bands. And I said, yeah, I want to intern work here, whatever. Um, and that was kind of it. Kevin started working for me when he was 15. What did and he then, do when he was 15? It's the same stuff he was doing when he was 17, when you met him. Okay. But he, he came in with like orange spiky hair and a skateboard and an Avail sweatshirt. Nice. And I put, he goes, yeah, I know your label. I have the J-Church 7 and she put out. And I'm like, all right, you're hired. <laughs> that was Rich Egan on why he hired Kevin. One of the things that was intriguing to us about the label is that some of the guys in my band and I were big face-to-face fans. I always loved face to face. I mean, I, I, I'm very selective about like that kind of era of pop punk, but the stuff of, of it I, that I like, I really like. And to me, they were just like, they were a, like a rock, like a pop rock band. Like they were yeah. kind of, they were like, like they had just like really good hooks and really good. And I just, I liked it more mm-hmm. as a, you know, a fan of pop music. So it was, and it didn't have that like the, right. What was, We've called the cutting steak beat or the drummer. Yeah. Or the for, the forbidden beat is what yeah. we used to call it. Yeah. They, they never really fit on fat records in my mind anyway, you know? Um, yeah. They were definitely an outlier. Yeah. Cause, and they weren't really signed there because Mike bought the record off Dr. Strange and they right. put it out and then they went on to a major label, but they were always, you know, lyrically to me and melodically a lot different. They never, they weren't like no effects, you know, that wasn't what they did. No, they were um, more, more in, you know, uh, you know, more along the lines of like the descendants. You know what I mean? Yeah, they were descendants, social D, bad religion hybrid kind of thing for me. But certainly the descendants being the, the without any of the cute girl songs, because Trevor just can't do cute. <laughs> well, I'm pretty confident the descendants are the first emo band. So, oh, no doubt. We signed to Vagrant in 1999 when it really wasn't conventional to go from one independent label to another indie. I it is such an interesting thing to think that that was such a like strange thing to do at the time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yo man. You know it's it's weird looking back on things that became the norm that we were doing. And I've said this before, kind of like in other interviews or whatever. But like a lot of the stuff that we were doing just kind of wasn't done, and we didn't know that you didn't do that and we weren't playing by any rules and you guys certainly weren't playing by any rules so it was kind of a perfect match that way Mm -hmm. you know or like i mean whether it was going to another indie a a smaller indie having your own imprint taking a tour bus out even to stuff like that kevin was doing kevin used to buy the homepage of websites as their flash intro we'd have little like what would be the equivalent of tv commercials announcing records and that was just Net, that was unheard. Well, that was, I mean, we we already had faith in you because we were already working with you as management. Didn't really know Cohen, but then we got to be friends with Kevin and it was like. Yeah, awesome. He, he's, he, you know, he's like a wonder kid. I mean, he's yeah. 
not a kid, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff, man, that looking back on that we did that just wasn't being done. Or if it was done, it was like looked down on. And I just kind of love the fact that everything was new for all collectively, you know what I mean? Going for it. And we were, you know, we were too naive to know that there was any kind of rules or that we couldn't do the stuff that we were doing. Well, I mean, there, you know, as the industry's changed even more, it's like, there aren't any rules really. You can do it. There's a million ways to, to skin that cat as it were. Sure. Now, 20 years ago, it was like, you know, it you know, was it, it kind of a, more curated sort of thing at the time. Mm-hmm. How'd you pitch this to Cohen? that's a good that's actually a great story it was an interesting conversation because it came down to we were selling we knew that we we knew that we needed to grow and we were selling a lot of the face-to-face live record and before your punk but it was literally me and kevin and john in a room we had no sales guy like john was learning on the job how to do sales so John wanted to hire James Cho from Tooth and Nail because James had a reputation of being a really good sales guy. And John really wanted to hire James Cho. And then I really wanted to use that money to sign you guys. So we had a choice to make. And I said, well, look, there's no point in getting a sales guy unless we have a band to sell. And I don't want to sign my client here unless we have a top sales guy who can do the job. So John and I went back and forth on the mathematics of that. And we ended up uh, getting a loan and doing them both. In classic vagrant fashion, we just uh, couldn't, aff- <laughs> couldn't afford it. So we just went for both of them. And that's how, that is how, we, uh, that's how we did it. It was, it was almost the exact same amount of money to hire James as it was to sign you guys. That's what I remember. Rich and John Cohen had a really unique relationship that really kept them in a balance that seemed to work for the label. Here's Kevin Kusatsu. Rich is really ambitious. And I think it was slightly different of an operating status quo for like what people thought punk labels should do at the time. Um, and I think, you know, Rich wanted to retain the spirit of, the, of what he loved uh, in punk rock and all that. Um, but I, and he, but he, uh, while main, he wanted to maintain that while achieving something greater than what had been achieved so far. And he was able to get that pretty far with face to face early on. And then he was able to get it further with the acts that he signed at Vagrant, right? And then he was able to sort of lead and commandeer. And what I think is unique is that he had this sort of wide-ranged vision when at a time people were very, to your point, Matt, very compartmentalized, right? And Rich understood something about like his training as an entertainment manager, right? Like it it helped expose him to something about how to uh, create good circumstances for his clients, right? And I think his solution to that was becoming the label. At that time, right, you'd be shipping, you might be not unpaid on 50,000 units of full weight, right? And have to go manufacture more because like, oh shit, we just like Europe wants an order, right? And you don't have a license or, you know, fuck, like it got added to a radio station and things are blowing or you got the MCAT program that you never thought you'd get. Um, so they were juggling different things then, right? And then- Is Cohen a part of that puzzle or does it like, is it mostly just like Rich's ambition kind of thing? Like I know Cohen was no, kind Cohen's, of- No, Cohen's 100% a part of that puzzle, man. The momentum at which Rich was operating and the pace and speed, he needed someone who was going to be like, I'm protecting the business, right? And so Cohen was able to kind of, you know, do that for what they were doing, you know, and really get like having to operate. It. So, you know, it's a, it's sometimes forgotten when you think about businesses, right? Like that, like there's two people. <laughs> what he had to be responsible for was very different to Rich. And it was also the kind of things that in any business that's really unsexy, right? 
No one really wants to be responsible for logistics and distribution. For what a record label is, that's like in some ways the most important job. Because like if the records are getting distributed and moving, you know, there's no income and revenue. So he, you know, he had to balance a lot of that all the time. And he also had to balance Rich's risk. And I'm not like, Rich is a risk, risk taker, naturally. And I think Cohen had to sort of really maintain. This is Trevor Keith from Face to Face again. I think to become as successful as it ultimately became, Rich definitely needed people around him to um, to keep to keep him grounded in some sense because he is an incredible idea man. You know, he's a great visionary and he has a great sense of like what bands are going to be successful and and you know what what's going to click with audiences. But you know, in order to concentrate all your time on that you don't i don't know most people i know like that don't also have like a a strict sense of like money management (laughs) yeah so risk was i mean rich was willing to take risks that john wouldn't and see and that's why i don't think john could have run a successful record label on his own he never because he never would have signed a band that he wasn't sure was going to sell records and therefore he would probably only sign crappy bands because bands have to be developed and they have to be exposed to the world and marketed. So if you don't hear that spark in the band and you're only concerned with how many records or downloads or streams they're going to have, then um, you're probably not going to be very good at it. Yeah. You end up like kind of chasing your own tail. You're always like, or like chasing the fads, you know, of like what's going to be the next big thing or whatever, as opposed to just being like, this is awesome. We should put this out. It's, and whenever you're chasing fads, you're always too late, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> by the time you found out about it, it's probably not cool anymore. Right. So. By the time Cohen but found no. out, by the time Cohen found out about it, it definitely wasn't cool anymore. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. Getting back to the story on how the label grew, we immediately brought some friends into the family. So how was it when uh, we brought you the anniversary in Kofax? Were you just like, <laughs> I th- <laughs> you know what? I thought you guys were so high in the anniversary and that, that I was like, I, like, I get it, but what am I missing until I met them? And then I realized what absolute original human beings they were. And it's a really polite way to put it. <laughs> Who was the next band you signed after us? It was weird because we tended to sign bands in threes. And so I, we signed um, the Alkaline Trio and Dashboard and, and Hot Rod and Rocket and then Saves the Day. So, but Hot Rod still had one more record with Fred, and we Andy and I were talking about that because there was a thing about they had one more record with with Triple Crown, and I think you guys like helped promote the record on Triple Crown. Yeah, I think they'd already done and turned in the record. Yeah, free to sign with us, but yeah, we did know going in that they had another record that Fred just hadn't put out yet. But yeah, I, I remember, I distinctly remember signing. I think after you, I think we signed. Yeah, it was the Alpine Trio was next, and then. It was Dashboard after that. Although I think Dashboard and Rocket and Hot Rod were all at the same time, like in the same, literally like the same 30 day period or something crazy. Was, was that another like kind of having to convince John to, to go along with that plan or was it just sort of like, this is what expansion looks like? And Yeah, it was, he, I think uh, it was, this is what expansion looks like. And the proof was in the pudding with you guys. Cause when Summer Right Home About came out, it was, there was no, slowing down at all there was no slow burn up to it and it just went you know we we were scrambling to we were pressing records night and day so it wasn't hard to convince cohen that he should follow my harebrained schemes once in a while (laughs) 
<laughs> after they signed all these bands, things started to get pretty intense at the label. After you went on tour with Weezer, Chris went on tour with Weezer, then Saves the Day went on tour with Weezer, and you went on tour with Green Day, and Saves the Day went on tour with Green Day and Blink. Which we passed on. Just yeah, say. yeah. <laughs> yes, did. You, you, we'd already seen that movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just so, it was just craziness. It was, things were, yeah, exploding for Chris, no doubt, but they were kind of exploding for everybody. Like Saves the Day had the biggest, well, until Dashboard's next record came out, Saves the Day had the biggest first week sales of any one we ever had. That was the first one to chart in the top 100 for us. Here's Kevin Kusatsu. The demands on Vagrant at that time, 98, 99, 2000, right? Like you said, there was like this sort of a downpour of business, right? And like, and just things were going well, a lot of momentum. But yeah, to your point, like I remember we had a manufacturer, you had the CD manufacturer and then the booklet, but then people wanted to start doing specialty packaging, right? And then it's like, do you print the CD? Where do you get the disc made and then send it to the packaging people and yada, yada, yada. But it was um, a lot of it, because you, you had to control your inventory. There wasn't like a ton of drop shipping at the time. So what they had done was they, they leased two apartments next door to the office in Santa Monica. Interesting anecdote about that. Next door to that was a guy who bought and sold um, comic book and above was um, a BDSM like Miss Madam. So if they were doing late shipment, there was a guy that worked, the guy that worked those rooms was, a, there was sexual Ryan and then there's Ryan Quigley. Sexual Ryan? Yeah, his nickname for short was Sex. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember Sexual Ryan. He would do all the inventory mail order along with the other guy. Because there wasn't really like a, there was mail order. I don't recall that we had like a very robust one. And there wasn't a lot of like online shopping run and merchandising, uh, at least for the labels. And, and and when it started to become that, Vagrant probably wasn't the lead, not nearly as focused on that as say like some of the hardcore label wars and stuff like that. There's a lot, you know what it was is like a lot of logistics and supply chain. If I had to like think back and like label it something, that's what it was. And I think to your point, like the tension, pro, you know, I think it was sort of, there was a lot driven on that because of those demands, right? Meeting manufacturing deadlines, drop ships, getting thousands of CDs to target because like you got lucky and got an end cap program, right? And then trying to, you know, get it through to the, various independent distributors out there because there's all these, you know, I think people forget, right? There's like independent record stores, you know? So every small town you go to, there's that one like sort of base for the touring bands. You know, each town usually had like, they had a store and you could dig for records. There was like the punk guy. There was like the guy who knows all the breaks, the, the jazz aficionado, the dude who only listens to Sun Ra, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, <laughs> That's true. I used to work. I used to work in one of those stores. It was interesting, you know, and like I think because at, in that time, you know, your packaging could make you more distinct and unique amongst the marketplace, right? It wasn't like a great photo shoot for Instagram or you know a killer trick that, or meme or dance or something, right? So it was like a lot of it was that detail. So I think a lot of and then a lot of time got put into those kind of resources too. So like the graphic design and the packaging, and then like. I want to do a quad gatefold digipack CD with like a booklet made of rubber from space. But, it, but we can only charge $5 for it. As you'll hear, Vagrant's biggest business obstacle was dealing with manufacturing of CDs and distributing them, which led to work with some strange characters. So what's going on during this time? Because then there's, and it's, it's blurry to me because it, it, I knew it was relevant to what was going on in my life, but was you know, making a record and, and just kind of was like, I don't know, you figure it out. But there was the whole distribution thing. And then there was going to be like a lawsuit or something like that. It was when we were in Connecticut making on a wire. Oh, yeah. Because I was taking the train from the courthouse to Connecticut in the snow. 
to go see you guys make it on the wire. I remember it well. So with our growth, um, we were kind of outgrowing our distributors. We were going through Carolina. We were going through a bunch of mom and pop distributors, you know, who take 40 or 50 records a week, like the revolvers and people like that. But they're like the bread and butter. They also pay like clockwork, you know, and they're also one guy operations who rely on our records. And it was really important for us to, to keep working with them. But we were growing so fast and we needed to, nobody could keep up with the records and stores. And um, this was based on your records. So we started to look for a new distributor, which was actually at the urging of our current distributor. They're like, you guys are kind of getting too big for us. So um, we used to press, <laughs> we used to press our records. Uh, you're not going to, you wouldn't be surprised to find this out, but John found a guy who would press our records for much cheaper than everybody else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he, uh, but it was not the most upstanding of operations because he also pressed his real gig was pressing porn CDs or porn DVD. I have a vague memory of hearing about this. Yeah. So he, he pressed, he was, it was like a mile or two from our office in Venice and he it was a two-man operation. One guy drove the truck and the other guy pressed the porn, the black market porn uh, DVDs that would show up on like Canal Street and stuff. So John's like, hey, I found this guy and he'll do it for like what is like some ridiculously low price. Just, and uh, CDs, right? For CDs. <laughs> it's the same technology. He'll press yeah. the So we did this. So I'm like, uh, whatever, that's your gig. Go for it. And the guy was, we, we were keeping the guy in business. We were pressing so many CDs. I just remember every day the other guy in the truck would come rolling up in the truck and then bringing your records upstairs and loading them in the hallway. And then we'd have to ship them out immediately to our distributor. Mm -hmm. And that was our distribution. And I'm like, this, this is getting a little ridiculous when you get in, you know, 20,000 CDs dropped off your doorstep every three days. And so our distributor like, yeah, man, you guys may want to look for, you know, for somebody bigger because, and it was Caroline at the time. And they were the, you know, we had a loyalty to them. They took our first seven inch, like they were always great to us. And so awesome. Network of distributors. And um, so we said, all right. So, but in the meantime, I was at, uh, remember when you guys, the, the, what, was the actual first Vagrant America tour. It just wasn't called that. Where face-to-face -face went one way and you guys went the other. It was Napster. Oh, Napster one, yeah. Yeah. So on that tour... I wish I could explain that. It was a tour that was sponsored by Napster, which is a weird a weird thing to think about now. Yeah. It was, it was the, you know, that was the antichrist of the music business back then. But we were like, who better to get in business with? Like, that's, that's, so, that's so you, too. Just to be like, yeah, fuck it. Just smash the system. <laughs> you know, like... It, it, it just made so much sense because all of the kids who were discovering our bands were discovering off of Napster and then showing right. up at you know. So they came and they said, "Hey, you want to do this?" And I was like, "Yes, I do." So that was the the what that was kind of the year before the Vega America tour, but that was kind of the prototype for it. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't remember who was on that tour with this. I'm sure you could it was the it. anniversary and um, anniversary in Kofax. Yep. And then face to face, it was face to face saves the day offline trio, newfound glory. Oh, wow. Yeah. Those tours were nuts and they were just insane. And, uh, but I was on that tour. I was left one of your shows and, and it was close enough to the next, to the face to face one. And I was at the Trocadero in Philadelphia and John called me and he goes, uh, he goes, dude, 
Jonathan got killed. And I'm like, uh, who's Jonathan? And he goes, the guy who manufactures our records. The porn guy? The porn guy oh, got no. by the Chinese mafia. I go, well, what, what does that mean for us? He goes, dude, we owe him a ton of money and his creditors are going to come knocking on our door any minute. And it's the Chinese mafia because the guy, we didn't have any credit. So the guy was just kept floating us records. Why have I never heard this before? This is fucking crazy. Is this true? Jesus it, Christ. It's 100% true. So John goes, because I, I, I was like, okay, what does that mean? I never met the guy. I'm, you know, rest in peace. And I was like, okay, that's probably bad then. So we had to immediately, like, that next day, start to look for a new distributor. But the rub was we had to find somebody who would also press our records, right? So back then, they were called pressing and distribution deals. Well, nobody wanted to give us a pressing and distribution deal. They were interested in distributing it, but they're like, you guys have one band. Like, this might be a fluke. Like, we'll distribute it, but we can't extend you credit to press a bunch of a whole bunch of records. And so all the places that we went to that, you know, that distributed all the labels that we liked, you know, like Merge and Epitaph and Discord and everything, they all passed. They go, yeah, we'll distribute you, but we can't press your records. The only person that said we press our records was Steve Gottlieb at TVT. And... I got a call from him. I didn't know anything about TVT or him. And I kind of asked around. They're like, dude, he's super litigious. Trent Reznor sued him, blah, blah, blah. It, it was this label that was basically an indie label. And it was he had a ton of money because he used to do like TV theme song soundtracks. And he okay. sold a shit of them. And he put out the first Nine Inch Nails record. And like, but then weird stuff like Pitbull and Lil John and just, it was just rank. But, it, you know, classic vagrant. It was like, all right, we'll go with you. Because he was the only one who oppressed our records. So we did. And we did the deal with him. And um, it's like almost the, the what we kept out of the deal was those little distributors I was talking about earlier. Like we, we carved out like, okay, we're still allowed to go through these little distributors who, you know, for X amount of records, because that's our bread and butter. And so that was part of the agreement. And then we started to, then we put out the Alkaline Trio record and the Dashboard record and the Saves the Day record was coming down the pike. And those, your record and those two other records were selling so much, it like tripled expectations that they had. But then instead of being stoked on that, TVT was like, okay, we want all the mom and pop distributors too. And I was like, no, fuck no, you're not getting those. That was part of our deal. And then they go, well, we're going to hold up your payment. We're going to do this, that, and the other. And uh, so we fought over it and Saves the Day finished the record. And I delivered it to a different distributor. And so they sued us. You know, they wanted to protect their rights. And we countersued them for violating what we thought our rights were. And yeah, we ended up, we were in court that whole time the Vagrant America tour was out. So like right after Chicago, John and I had to fly to New York for three and a half weeks of like court proceedings and uh, ended up flying home on September 10th, 2001. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. The day before. And it was weird because we had wrapped up we had come to an agreement with TVT like to settle out of court and um, they, they still had some, you know, they still had to cross the T's and dot the I's and they're like, well, why don't you just stay, uh, you know, through the day and then fly out tomorrow on the 11th. I'm like, my wife and kids have been here for three weeks. I'm going home. You guys finish it. And we left on the 10th. And then I wake up the next morning on the 11th and the world had changed. But then saves left at, are you, you, they ended up going to, wasn't that the record? They ended up going to DreamWorks. No, 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 no. That was their first record for us. We just okay. put it out different distributor and um and the record was huge i mean that right. had out your and you know then that video started uh, like a whole thing and we actually were getting um 
we got a whole bunch of radio ads and then it was for at, the, at your funeral. And if you remember when 9-11 hit, any song that made anybody think of death, they took off the air. Mm-hmm. Like iHeart actually, or whatever the radio conglomerate was at the time, I think it was iHeart, took, like, oh, it was Clear Channel, yeah. Sent a list out saying, do not play these songs. And so Bleed American from Jimmy World yep. and they were casuals of that. And then we just could never get it back on the air after that. So, but yeah, that record came out kind of as a, on the Lone Wolf distributor because right after 9-11, our distributor that we did give it to, which went through Interscope, folded. So <laughs> it was a cluster. But yeah, so after that, right after the Saves Day record came out, was kind of at it at the craziest. It was uh, we were going through these lawsuits and incurring a whole bunch of debt and everything else, and that's when Interscope and a whole bunch of other labels wanted to get into business with us, and we ended up doing a deal with Interscope. They ended up like you ended up like partner. They like bought part of the label, right? What was the percentage? Forty nine. Okay, I didn't. You know, yeah. you know me. <laughs> I wanted that extra two percent for control. As you can hear, things kept getting more and more demanding at the label. This is Amy Fleischer Madden, who many people know as Amy Fiddler from the fantastic label she ran called Fiddler Records. Not everyone knows she worked at Vagrant for a while. There were there were days where, like, you know, in all of the chaos that we would have to literally just stop what we were doing because no one was sure what was happening, that Tweety would be like, I'm going to go get 40s. Do you, do you guys want 40s? Like, and it'd be like, okay. And we would just sit in the back and just like have a drink because we were so fucking stressed out that we just had to sit and wait for like, okay, now we're working with this record label today. Like what? Okay. Like it was bananas. And I, I was brought in to be the quote unquote new Kevin, which was also super confusing for me because Kevin mm-hmm. was my friend. Kevin was like, I'm moving to Kansas and you can rent my room. So like I literally moved into Kevin's apartment in his room. And then I started working at Vagrant in what would have been his old job. And I feel like Kevin, somebody somewhere, I'm not hurt, I'm not sure who thought of it or if it was even articulated, but it was like let's sign all of the biggest bands. Let's do that. Like, let's, let's take all of the biggest bands from each scene and just go. Like it was like, it's a fucking, I, I've, cause I've, I've wondered that myself. I, with knowing Kevin, I think, yes, I think that could have come from Kevin's brain, but I think that you guys, and I hate to use like an advertising word, but I think you guys were the tent pole of the whole thing. It was like, we have this proof of concept with the Get Up Kids and it works and we can do it. So let's do that seven yeah. more times. Like, whereas I think like the normal trajectory thought process would have been like, we need one more big band. It was like, let's just fucking yeah, blow go it big up. Or go home. Like, yeah, which I think is where all of the chaos comes in because when you have a band that was your size in that era, also we were inventing the wheel like as it was going. We were we're like building the airplane in the air. It was like, okay, now we're doing this kind of tour. How do we promote it? I don't know. Let's try these 10 things. Like it was like trying to reach new people and new media. It was like, it was just a whole confusing era. Vagrant had now grown into something much bigger and much different than what it started as. Vagrant was a was exploding too because it was like we were already friends with all these bands that you were signing even mm-hmm. even Braba who I had met I think in 2001 mm-hmm. and it was just kind of like then this like kind of Vagrant America thing rolls around and we're just like the fuck are you talking about <laughs> like we're just like and you're like you had like kind of built this like quick quick empire in like two years that was like all these bands to the point where it was like it made me think of like you know sub pop in the in the 90s 
you know, mm-hmm. where you would get, you would buy a record just because it had the label name on it. Yeah, it, it got crazy. And, and you know, that, that was an, a, that was a fortunate slash unfortunate byproduct. Cause I just, I never wanted to be the label where you bought it just because the logo and all the bands sound exactly like the bands before, which I don't think ours did, but it was an insane time of growth that was like ridiculous. You know, my impression is that you did want to kind of have this, like you wanted to like have sort of a, a for lack of a better term, cause I don't want to sound gross but like kind of a brand not that the bands all sounded the same but that like oh yeah almost like vagrant's a name you can trust you know kind of like no no question about it you know i mean i was i definitely wanted to be like you know the motown of punk rock without the disgruntled artists you know it was like then that was really what the vagrant america tour was supposed to be like it was supposed to be like those old motown deals where you know Smokey robinson would get backed up by the temptations which then you know and it would just keep rotating just jaw-dropping talent you know right Every time, for every, you know, every next act that came on stage, that's kind of, we envisioned it. That somewhere crossed between that and the Buddy Holly Winterfest tour without the plane crash. Right. Uh, that's kind of exactly what we were going for. I did want Vagrant to be a trusted brand. I just didn't want, I wanted it to be a trusted brand the same way that Discord was a trusted brand or Merge was a brand, yeah. you know. This even spurred some jealousy in groups that were doing huge, huge things. Here's Chad Gilbert of Newfound Glory. I think there's definitely something to be said too for that all the bands in that particular period were friends. You know, like we were all like, we would all go hang out at each other's shows backstage or something like that. You know, it wasn't... You know, we're, we're playing with our favorite bands, like you said, in New Jersey. We're, we're opening with, you know, for the Get Up Kids, one of our favorite bands, playing the Saves the Day release shows, and that was a band we loved. And all this is all happening at the same time. And, and, and then all of our favorite bands signed to one label, and we're not on that label. <laughs> so we're like, oh, man. So... That, that was just like the feeling, you know, and then, and then with everything that happened, oh, and no motive. We love no motive too. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah. Hot Rod Circuit. I mean, sorry about tomorrow is, is still like probably the most underrated record. There really was a lot going on at the label at this time. Saves Day came out of the box pretty hot. I mean, they were kind of the biggest one that we had signed from scratch, you know, or, or not from scratch who came off equal vision, but like the trio dashboard, Hey Mercedes was coming off, you know, trying to live up to the braid um, legend. You had hot rod, you had the anniversary yeah, you, you know, the, all those bands were kind of scrapping together. So I think, and, and a lot, all of them toured together, no motive, like all those bands toured together. So I think there's a natural competition and, and there's kind of a natural kind of high school, a little bit of backbiting going on, which like I said, I, I remember having many long talks with Chris about it during some of those tours. And, and I think it, it, he took it a little probably too much to heart at first. And then, you know, and then he everything bygones and bygones. But yeah, I think you're I, I, it was there. It was there. And it would naturally manifest itself with hostility towards the label. Not hostility. That's kind of way too harsh. But like, you know, kind of a jaundice eye towards the label. Like, whoa, what are you doing for us? And you kind of want to go, well, you sold a quarter million records and you your last one before for us so 5,000 so we're still doing pretty good for you too you know yeah but I, I never wanted to get into that kind of crap but it was sort of inevitable sometimes it would it would rear its head in very interesting ways I'll put it that way well it's, that's not really your personality to want to get into like a, a pissing match like that yeah who cares but you know, you, you're always very kind of like certainly hands off. Like, it, it, yeah, like I said, everything, everything with Chris, like it got to the point where every I want to say every day, but it was more probably more like every week. There was some other ridiculous milestone that would just drop on our head, you know, and it, then it was like, hey, do you want to do the do you want to do MTV Unplugged? We were reviving the show specifically for him. And we're like, 
yeah, yeah, sure. That'd be cool. <laughs> you know? I like so, to that it's basically MTV unplugged, AKA the way Chris normally plays anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Just, and in classic Robert Flash um, fashion, when he, in the opening of it, if I remember correctly, he, he gives this little wink and nod kind of pause. He goes, so this is MTV unplugged. Like, <laughs> like I'd be playing this way anyway, kind mm-hmm. of thing. In that kind of dry Carrava delivery, it was kind of great. It was crazy, man. I mean, he was on the cover of Spin twice in the same year. Wow, which never had happened, I'm told before. Um, so it was, it was, it was weird. It was weird. A lot of, a lot of growing pains. A lot of like great times, but definitely, you know, exploring new territory all the time. And this is Blink 182's Mark Hoppus on what he perceived about the label during this time. There are certain moments in time where a label seems to have their finger on the pulse of what's really happening in music at that moment. Uh, you know, you can look at it uh, back from Discord. You can look at it at SST. You can look at uh, Epitaph, uh, different moments in kind of this punk rock history. And I think that Vagrant was there kind of, you know, late 90s and the aughts, Vagrant really you know, was in touch with what was happening in the scene at that time. The Vagrant Across America tour seemed to also be a real point of when the label started to become a big, big thing into itself. But it was a crazy time of growth, man. Each one that came out seemed like it was bigger than the one that came before it. Well, and I I think it wasn't until the Vagrant America thing happened that I think we, like, we were cognizant of of like more bands that we were friends with were signing to the label, but like that it was becoming this sort of not monster. Cause that implies that it's negative, but like that it's this bigger thing. And like, then it's like, you wanted us to be on this vagrant America tour. And I remember being like, but we're not in the vagrant business. We're in the get up kids business. <laughs> like, right. I mean, we love all these people. They're our friends. And a lot of them are bands that we, we signed to our imprint, but it's kind of like, you know, our, our take on it was just sort of like, we're, we're really, you know, putting, we need to put us first, you know, like sure. not, I think to our, maybe to our detriment a little bit, hindsight being 2020, I don't know how the rest of the guys necessarily feel, but I kind of sort of think that we missed an, a bit of a rising tide floats all ships sort of opportunity because we mm. were feeling kind of, uh, I don't know, just sort of like not grumpy that those people were there and that things were going really well. It was just more like, okay, that's fine. We got to go make a record and then we're right. going to go out on tour again. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I was, I was definitely cognizant of that, especially, and especially sensitive to it with you guys, because, you know, you were my client. You were also the thing that built the thing that got that big, you know, and I didn't ever want to kind of make it be like, like an albatross around your neck and nor any of the bands, which is, you know, frankly, that kind of, this kind of goes back to talking about the, conflict of interest thing that hungover john said was like on that tour i insisted that everybody get paid their regular headlining money and that we cover the buses non-recoupable and all this other kind of stuff so we consequently lost our ass yeah that's, but I, that's fucking crazy dude <laughs> that's insane <laughs> but i i never wanted it to be like you know i never want to even be the give it the appearance of taking advantage of the bands you know so that to that end yeah, it was uh, it, it was it was an absolute bloodbath in the time being, but it, it launched us to yet another level, you know. I should note, Hard Eight was the management company Rich ran in the same building as Vagrant. One of the more unique things about Vagrant was that they often managed the bands that were on the label. Many frown on this practice since it creates a conflict of interest where the checks and balances disappear. But from my experience and many others on the label, this just meant they pushed you even more as they had an even bigger interest in promoting you. This is Trevor Keith from Face to Face again. Uh, Well, the biggest difference is that our manager also owned the label. 
And I think that created uh, a unique set of benefits and a unique set of problems. And we didn't have that experience anywhere else. I think Rich was aware of it. And, and I think he really tried his best to keep from mixing the two. I think because we first, our relationship first started with Rich as our manager, he always was careful about playing the role of manager with us and, and making everything feel like he was looking out for the best interests of the band as the manager. So that gets tricky when a label is offering you a deal because normally your manager would negotiate that deal and beat up the label for the best deal he can get the band. Um, but if you're wearing the same hat, you know, you have to tread lightly there. The manager should be, it, it, it's hard to take your, your label hat off and just be the manager. It is and it isn't. I think maybe maybe the best way that situation can play out is if every band you're releasing on your label is also your client, but you don't put any records out for bands who aren't your management clients because then everything's sort of equal. The rub was that, <laughs> and, and I, I shouldn't gripe about this because it, we were getting preferential treatment, obviously, but because... <laughs> Same. <laughs> The basis of, of Rich's, uh, when he stepped out as a manager on his own, we went with him and we didn't have to, you know, we could have stayed at Borman Moyer, but I think that loyalty was big for Rich and we wanted to because Rich was awesome and we trusted him and his instincts and insight. I, I don't look back on any of my experiences with heartache or vagrant as negative. They were, they were salad days, you know, but it, it was a, Better experience being on Vagrant during the release and promotion of the live album, which was the early days when it was a small, manageable company with just a few people caring for it, you know, and we were distributing records through Caroline. That was a better experience for me being in a band than releasing our proper full-length album that went through the Interscope machine However, you know, six records or three or four records later, that was a little bit of a letdown. I just really didn't feel like the record got the push or the attention or the resources dedicated to it. And it might have been because of what else was, you know, on the release docket at the time and what other records were also being marketed at the time. But I didn't feel like we were getting that kind of preferential treatment. Here was the interesting dynamic at Vagrant. I think I'd, I'd be interested to get your opinion on this. Rich always treated us like we were top dog. I never felt second to any band uh, when it came to Rich. But what I noticed is this staff at Vagrant, namely not really John, but everyone else that they hired, they started becoming resentful of the management clients, of the hard eight management clients. So I felt like, you know, when we would ask for things regarding a release or whatever, they kind of roll their eyes or kind of be like, uh, here we go again. Because I think Rich was going to the other side of the building, the, the vagrant side with John and whoever and going, hey, these are management clients. I want this, 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 and this done for them. And then, you know, shit rolls downhill. So by the time it landed on Wayne's desk or whatever, he'd be like, wait a minute, why am I doing all this extra crap for this band when this record isn't even selling as good as this other one? And I'm a label guy doing a job. We should be dumping gas on the record that's selling well. But you want me to spend a bunch more time on this other band because they're a management client. This is Rich Egan. Did you have concerns about the whole kind of like 
conflict of interest aspect of it as far as like being or maybe oh. I guess more did Cohen have concerns about it because <laughs> John I think still has concerns to this day <laughs> felt like you know he was and I get it now you know I always went with as far as John was concerned I was like look man what's good for the goose is good for the gander John like you know let's let's give them what they want this this is our uh you know, this, we're building a whole label around them. Um, and so, yeah, John definitely, and that, you know, that went for, it continued on with the years with dashboard and with face to face and, you know, saves the day. And my other man, it's John, I think to us, to us, you know, it was a, to, to his credit, it was, it was understandable. He was kind of held over a barrel because, you know, for obvious reasons. But, um, you know, I, I like, I'd like to think it worked out well for the clients. Yeah. I, I would so. <laughs> okay. But we were talking about the Vagrant Across America tour. Back to that. That tour itself, I think, was like the the last big kind of hurrah. Like when you guys came down from Chicago to do those shows, that was insanity. You know, I mean, we did 49, 51 dates, I think, on that tour and they all sold out. But Chicago was definitely the highlight because you guys were on it. The trio was on it. Saves the Day Dashboard, Hey Mercedes. I think Reggie did a set. Like it was just so much fun. It was to me, pretty it wild. Was- it, there's not a whole lot I can say about that. Four nights in Chicago. Um, it was a little blurry for you, was it? Uh, I'm, you know, there's documentation that it actually happened, but right. you know, not not in my memory so much. You know, we had planned to do a whole episode on the Vagrant Across America tour, but it seems like everybody's memory is a little fuzzy about it for some reason. No, I, I remember that, and I remember the uh, when we had the kind of like after party in the in the VIP lounge at the House of Blues, and it was like on Vagrant's tab. And I remember me and Matt Skiba just going, "We'll have the most expensive scotch you have, please." Yeah, with ice cubes made out of your second most expensive yeah. scotch. Yeah, it, it, uh, yeah. Uh, oh boy, that we have 34 rooms at the House of Blues Hotel. So Wait, we're all stoked that they comped us the penthouse. They're like, yeah, take the penthouse. We're charging you for these other <laughs> While Rich was always good with looking out for his band's interest, there was one way in which he robbed us. Do you remember me cleaning the table at CeeLo? Yeah, well, which time? Like, I remember <laughs> in Chicago, yeah. And I remember you used to take our per diems when we were making something right home about. Correct. But this was an especially big haul because we were having that party in that crazy penthouse that they gave us. Mm-hmm. So we had the regulars at the table and then just a bunch of strangers that we were grifting on. And so there was a whole bunch of cash floating around on that table. But as we know, when you're having a lot of fun, things have to take a downward turn at some point. I think things did start to change in 2004, though, because, you know, it was probably leading up to 2006. 2006 is kind of, in my mind, the marker of when things changed. And, you know, frankly, uh, in 2004 is probably the beginning of that. But it, it was 2004, 2005. How do I put this? Things became, for me, a lot less fun. Everything got bigger. Everybody wanted more money. Everybody wanted a tour bus. Everybody, you know, we weren't, we couldn't sneak up on anybody anymore. We weren't an underdog. And it kind of became, I looked up and we had too many bands. We were, I was feeling like we were bloated. Saves the Day had left for DreamWorks. They did a huge deal with DreamWorks. You know, you guys were were kind of, you'd finished the cycle for On a Wire and it was kind of, we had, you guys had stuff going on. And I think that was around, like, was that around like the Japan tour anniversary? Uh, yeah. Right in there. Yeah. We had some. Um, personal drama yeah and then also we were kind of like 
licking our wounds as far as like down a wire. Yeah. About a wire thing of like, what are, what are we going to do next? Right. And dashboard was trying to make a follow up to uh, a mark emission, which had done exceptionally well, you know, like places did really, really well and was a gold record. And then there was huge expectations for a mark emission and it did really well. And MTV unplugged went platinum and then but then there was a whole lot of pressure on dusk and summer and he we had our deal with interscope and jimmy iovine put him in the studio with daniel lenoir thinking i'm not sure what but it didn't really didn't really pan out and so we had to scrap the whole record and start all over again and and like i said saves the day was going through you know they were kind of dealing with what you guys dealt with although to a greater degree with and and really the bands that were coming up who were would traditionally be in kind of my wheelhouse in terms of taste i just to me weren't very good they just sounded like you know third and fourth generation get up kids ripoffs and saves the day ripoffs put out senses fail it, it sold phenomenally well and it was right at that time that the scene was kind of changing into it was you know incorporating more of a hardcore element to it and it was kind of the next evolution of our scene but it wasn't like we were like oh we got to sign bands like that now like we just because by the same token at the same time we had signed that i think right at that same year actually the Lemonheads. let's see dios I remember Dios, they were good. And then 2006, we signed the Hold Steady. And so we were kind of going in a different direction anyway. So we had, and then we had Westerberg. And, you know, so we had that kind of lane. And then we had like, you know, the, the, you know, the, the stalwarts, the Mount Rushmore of Vagrant, <laughs> you guys and Saves Day and Dashboard and the trio. And then this, this new thing coming around is like, we signed the Bled because I just thought they were awesome. And then we, yeah, Senses Fail just blew up. I mean, that record went gold and uh, it was just like, oh, wow. And we had signed From Autumn to Ashes at the same time. But I think it was like, like I said, we weren't chasing these harder sounding bands. It was just, it was no different than when every demo that came in sounded like you guys, you know, five years before. So that's kind of what we ended up signing. But it, again, it, it was a time that I, I don't look back on super fondly because it was, it was really, there was like inner competition between bands. And like I said, everything got more expensive and more bloated and just a lot less what I got into this to do, you know? You can't say that the label only signed heavier bands, especially since Rocket from the Crypt and the one and only Paul Westerberg were on the label. But those heavy bands weren't there in the early days. The trajectory of the label and the diversity of the bands it was signing only got more messy as time went on. So the kind of like census fail and then kind of going into like thrice and stuff, which is sort of like even heavier sort of thing. And I, I, I you know, I, I see the kind of like, you know, what, what we're calling in the, in the, outline kind of like heroes of rock side of vagrant where you got like rocket westerberg uh-huh. lemonhead Lemon. that kind of stuff that to me set is like is is you like i see you in that and i don't know that i necessarily see as much of not that you dislike census fail not that you dislike thrice but i don't see that as being like I, I wonder if that was more like the influence of of the of the other people who were running the label like if it was like wayne and dan and 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 that kind of no i think i think your read on it is is correct definitely from a taste standpoint thrice would be a little different because i was i was all i always loved that band since they were on hopeless yeah they were kind of the exception to the the i don't really listen to that kind of music rule i just thought that uh 
first of all, they're, as you know, having toured with them, they're just such amazingly great guys. <laughs> and, you know, they were local boys and I really, I dug everything. And then artists in the, artists in the ambulance, I thought was a great record. And then, you know, Ellis booked them and that whole thing. So I was always a thrice fan. Thrice was kind of the outlier of, but of that kind of scene for me. Cause to me, they were like a, I don't know. They had just grander visions for themselves, you know? And at this point, like I'm, I'm not involved with Vagrant anymore by the time we get towards kind of the end of it. But then there's like this whole another wave of like newer indie stuff, uh-huh. right? Yep. Yeah. So, that pretty much ushered in with the hold steady. That's what I was going to ask. Cause the hold steady opened for us at our, one of our farewell shows in 2005 mm-hmm. and it was kind of like oh these guys are like the thing the thing like, you know it's like yeah. and i thought they were really good but i don't think i realized that you the vagrant was working with them i just kind of assumed that they were on like matador or something like you know yeah. like, like that kind of vibe no 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 doubt we were nobody's top pick to sign the hold steady because they had done separation sunday on French Kiss, and it got like crazy press. Like they were on the cover of the Village Voice, you know? It was like this pitchfork gave it whatever, nine point whatever pitchfork does. And it was just so it seemed from the outside like, okay, this is like a, like you said, it belongs on Merge or something that is way more erudite than Vagrant, us being a kitty emo label. But, you know, I met with, with Craig and Tad. We got a meeting with them, and it turns out there were just massive replacements fans like me, and they were fans of our bands and um it just worked and we signed them and you know they they made an awesome record several awesome records for us but yeah that definitely was like uh wait a second they're gonna have to hold steady that kind of ushered in a yet another lane for us it wasn't it wasn't that weird to me in the sense of like it wasn't any weirder than paul fucking westerberg signing to your record label you know what i mean like it's just like uh that's what signing westerberg is still weird to me how how i pulled off that (laughs) i still have to pinch myself sometimes that was quite the experience. Now, Monine, we had signed after you guys, which was very much in my wheelhouse. I um, consider them part of, I don't, when did they sign? Because I, I consider them part of our wave, really. They were, they were, they were at the tail end of, of your wave. And they just, they reminded me, honestly, when I first heard them, of you guys, when I first heard Four Minute Mile. It was just unbridled, just enthusiasm for what they did. It was, I love. But so were you starting to feel kind of like it wasn't, like it wasn't your vision anymore at that point? I don't think of you as being like a big hardcore fan. No. Not that that you dislike it, but just like, it's not what moves you. Certainly not. I mean, not, not in what you and I considered hard, you know, I, I, can't say that I was like, I mean, I like sick of it all, but I wasn't a huge Madball fan and, mm. and first Strife and Ignite and that kind of stuff on the West Coast. Wasn't really my cup of tea. My, my hardcore, we didn't call hardcore, it was Black Flag, you know, it was yeah. just, but it wasn't hardcore in that sense either, because at least with that hardcore, I could identify with the ethics behind it and the ethos, you know? Yeah. But this was something completely different. This had had kind of the some of the elements of that East Coast hardcore thing, but then they would have super poppy choruses. And but they weren't really taking any sort of political stand. They were more lyrically bent towards the kind of stuff that you know we had traditionally put out. So it was kind of this mishmash. And then you got to remember it was happening all within the scope of my chem blowing up. So okay. that influenced 
you know, everything and everybody. So you had Fallout Boy and Mike Kim taking, you know, a bunch of elements that related to what we did and our bands did it and taking it, you know, to the mainstream. And that I think affected, you know, the trickle down theory. I think that had a huge effect on what was then, you know, kids, it's, it's weird. We, we look at it and just go, oh, that was only four years apart, but the kid, those kids were only 13 and now they're 17 and 18 making music, you know? How does this wrap up then? Like, how does, like, when did you, when did you stop? Cause when did you stop working with Vagrant? Around that time I was talking about when we just had so many bands. Yeah. Um, I also had, Heart 8 had grown a lot. So, and I had bands that weren't, uh, you know, Dashboard was now, you know, playing arenas. And, and I had like the Wallflowers and I had Shooter Jennings and I had, you know, I just had this, this kind of array of bands uh, on the management side, unlike, and there weren't Vagrant bands, you know what I mean? So um, that management was taking up a lot more of my time. And then in two, I believe it was, I want to say it was 2009, 2008, I, um, I did a deal with Live Nation uh, for my management company. And that took me physically out of the Vagrant offices and I moved into Live Nation offices. And then, you know, we ended up really growing the management company in, during that time to just all different you know, I had from Mac Miller to the Bare Naked Ladies to, I mean, just, you know, all over the place. And I wasn't doing bigger anymore. I wasn't physically there. And uh, I think that created kind of a kind of a fracture between me and John and and then hence me and the label. They were responsible for signing the bands and, you know, they did a great job. I mean, they ended up signing Edward Sharp in the 1975. All credit to them. They definitely changed the approach that it used to be. But, you know, it was John. John was running the ship. So it was his calls to he and Dan. It was his calls to make. And they did a great job. But I was, you know, I was pretty much sidelined. I was, I still, you know, I still owned half of it, but I didn't have a whole lot, if anything, to do with the the day to day of it. It's kind of interesting because, like, we keep talking about this like potential conflict of interest of being the manager of the band that's on the label that you own, but it sounds like it didn't really become a problem until you left. Yeah, you perfectly summed up. I haven't actually ever thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. But I, I really, I don't have anything but fond memories of it, but also just like the sheer audacity of youth, you know, of like, why, what, why did we think we could do that? But how we did, you know, and I credit that to the bands and I credit that to the people that, that, we're working uh, at Vagrant. It was a, we, we were all in it together. It wasn't like we hired a bunch of music industry pros. You know what I mean? It was, we didn't know any rules. Or like, so, a, like business school. Yeah. We didn't have any of that. It was just like this rules. Let's try this. But honestly, as great of a kind of, certainly that, you know, 99 to 2004 era, as, as fondly as I remember that. And we did do things that were really cool on a quote unquote business level or marketing level. It really is just a, it, it's, it was the perfect storm of creativity with the right bands making amazing records that made the whole thing go. You know, we could have done all the marketing in the world, but if you guys delivered crappy records, no, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. That's it for this episode of Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets. On our next episode, we will begin to tell the story of the Get Up Kids. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Jesse Cannon for MuseFormation and executive produced by Fred Feldman and Andrew Ellis. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next episode.